Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, celebrating 20 years of bringing the outdoors to Colorado Radio, here's Terry Wickstrom. Good morning. I am not Terry Wickstrom. I'm Brad Peterson filling in for Terry Wickstrom. Terry is out on assignment this weekend. But uh, I tell you what, we've got a great show ready for you. We've got it filled with fishing, hunting, and conservation. This springtime of the year is a real popular time of the year for conservation, and there are a couple big events coming up I wanted to make everyone aware of. First, we've got a fundraiser for the South Metro Pheasants Forever coming up on March 10th. If you've got interest in that, go to southmetroph.org. And then coming up March 24th is the Colorado Walleye Association Banquet. You can go to cowalleye.com. Now to start the show, we were lucky enough to have one of the top bass anglers, professional guys out there fishing right now. Last year, he finished third in the Angler of the Year standings for the Elite Series. He's won the Forest Wood Cup and the BFL All-American. And last year, I, during the Angler of the Year event at Mille Lacs, I was lucky enough to meet him at an event put on by Rapala. And I tell you what, this guy's a real special person. He took time to speak to every youth angler that was there. So I want to wel- welcome Jacob Wheeler. Good morning, hey Brad, Jacob. Man, I, I really appreciate you having me on, man. Thanks. Well, we talked a little bit and uh, last week about what topic you might want to talk about. And you brought up a topic that I think is real valuable to anglers. And that is, you know, a lot of people fish in tournaments you know, feel really good about the tournaments they do good at. But oftentimes, it's the ones that you have tough luck that are the best. And I know you wanted to talk about uh, Lake Martin, which was a, a little bit of a struggle for you. Absolutely. You know, that's the thing. Like last year, I mean, it, even the last three or four years, I feel like about everything, every decision you make, you're going to eventually, well, every decision that I made, for the most part, you, you'd have, everything was clicking. Everything was good. You know, you have those tournaments. Uh, that you go out there and you can't do anything wrong. And then you have those tournaments that you go out there and you can't do anything right. And I feel like you learn more from the tournaments that you have. Okay, I think we, we uh, a lot of times when you have issues uh, in tournaments, it is oftentimes if you keep an open mind and really think about it and evaluate it, that often is your best chance to learn more and become a better angler. People really spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about all the right decisions you made. But sometimes it's it's looking back, seeing what the people did that was different than what you had originally planned and maybe something that you missed, something you weren't thinking about that uh, can make a big difference. I think I know in my experience, you know, oftentimes it's those – I prefer when I'm pre-fishing to have a a struggle on the pre-fishing. It seems like it makes me a better angler. When I really feel like I'm on the fish, um, then it usually turns out not being nearly as good of a tournament. I think, Jacob, we have you back now. Absolutely. Hey, my wife, she turned on the truck and and actually literally the Bluetooth. You know how how technology is these days. But, yeah, we were talking about, you know, how how these events that, you know, when you catch them, it's it's great. But – you know, when it when it's when it's tough, I mean, you go out there and you have a tough event. I feel like 
you can learn a lot from the situations. I mean, you know, Mike Martin, for me, I had one of the toughest tournaments for me um, that I, since I've been fishing professionally. I ended up 95th. And, you know, a lot of times you want to sweep that one underneath the rock and, and move on. And that is a good way to look at it. But you have to look at that event and say, okay, what decisions did I not make right? What decisions did I make right? Um, if you had to do it all over again, I mean, obviously, hindsight 2020, what would you have done? Um, you know, and, and, and this is the thing. You know, in that event, it was very much so a, um, a event where I went to multiple lake. I was fishing multiple deep water places, you know, catching them out deep. Um, I wanted to go to the consistent bite. And then there was every, if you could catch a big large mouth, um, you know, a four or five pound large mouth, that was really going to catapult you up into the leaderboard. And so for me, I had the game plan of going deep um, and then going to, you know, fish large mouth later in the day so you know i, I started off the morning and i i go hit my first five or six or seven places and i don't have a bite you know and that that's not a good feeling when you know i mean by that time i, I told my marshal i brad i told my marshal i said man i said you know we should already caught 20 by now you know so you start to your wheels start to spin a little bit at that point in time and you know it's still early and you know, I start running a few more places. And, and the thing is that I really try to emphasize to people a lot of times when you're out there on the body of water, don't always go by your, your, your practice. Let that given day and the conditions that are, you know, really dictate what you do. You know, I went up to the bank and threw an X-Rap, um, you know, jerk bait. And then I went and cranked, and I was cranking a little bit, just in between a little bit, just to try to see if maybe, you know, the conditions – Maybe there's a few fish that moved up. Maybe for some reason that time of day they weren't there. You know, sometimes you just have to go down the bank and get a couple bites to give you a, a clue. You know, even though I was fishing out deep, you know, I might fish a point, a point out in 35, then I might go up on top of the point and throw a jerkbait on it. You know, it was just trying to understand what was going on. And, you know, whatever I did, I just couldn't get bit. And I finally, you know, I finally scrambled. The one thing I, I definitely did, and I can look at it even though, you know, even, you know, even though I feel like you know, I've been fishing professionally for a while, I definitely scrambled. You know, I hit, I hit eject on, on, the, on the deep water bite, and I went and went shallow, and I did catch a few, but I never caught a good one. You know, I ended up catching five fairly quickly. I actually didn't actually had one bass at 12 o'clock, and I caught like about nine keepers, never caught a big one. But that was something, you know, that at least, you know, you caught a limit. I hit eject, went up, and, and caught a few. Unfortunately, did not get that big bite either day of that tournament. But learning from, you know, those mistakes and learning from what you would do differently, that's a, that's a big part of being a, becoming a really good fisher, fisherman and, and, and working on your skills. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, my partner and I won a team walleye tournament two years ago out at uh, one of our local lakes called Jumbo. And the first yeah. day, we, we put up 17 pounds of, of fish had the biggest stringer by far and day two we went to our spot and in 30 minutes we realized that the water clarity had changed and the bite was not going to happen there and like you say we had to hit eject and we fished a couple of the other spots that we had fished the day before and uh, caught a few fish but we ended up finding fish in an area that we had not pre-fished that we had not fished the day before but based on the conditions, we were looking for a certain level of water clarity. We found that. We started getting bites, and then we worked to dial it in. But we were learning each day that you're out there, and that's a key to being a real successful angler. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, obviously you can have all the best baits and all the best lures and all this, but I feel like the best anglers, if you look at, you know, your, your Van Dams, your Iconellis, 
and your Andy Morgans and the guys that consistently catch them day in and day out, I think the biggest thing is decision-making. It's decision-making on the water. What makes them different is, yeah, they have a couple little tricks up their sleeves. It's the decisions that they make with the information that they have from practice and how they can just throw it all out and go, I mean, I see, I've seen it several times. I mean, just for myself, I've seen it where I've done it, where I've, I've, you throw out practice and you just go fishing. And you might look for a particular thing. You might be running around looking for specific stuff. But sometimes the best anglers, the Brian and the Brian Thrist, it reminds me very much so, keeping an open mind while you're out there and, and not spinning out. And that's, that's one thing I see a lot of people, and, I, and I've had it, I've done it definitely, I have, I've done it before. Those wheels start to get spinning, you know, you're fishing against the clock, you know, you only have, all right, you had two hours, you know, you're two hours in, you're four hours in, you're five hours in. All of a sudden now, you you know, you're back against the wall and now you're just running around going crazy. Sometimes you just got to take a deep breath, take a second and say, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to accomplish? What do I need to do? You know, and, and, and that's all it takes sometimes. You know, I feel like I've, I've done it several times where I'm like, all right, you're, spent, you're running around going crazy and that's not what you want to do. No, no. When you're running crazy and you're doubting your decisions is when, like you say, it seems like at least I spin out. Um, Absolutely. The biggest key that I've seen is when you make a decision, you need to be confident in that decision because if you aren't confident in it, you're constantly going to be thinking, well, maybe I should have stuck back there or you're going to be thinking about what's the next decision to make. When you make that decision, make it definitively, put 100% into whatever you're doing there because um, even though it may not be the right one, if you're not putting 100% of your focus and your concentration in that, you're not giving that decision a true effort. Exactly. You're, yep. You couldn't, you couldn't say it any better. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, we've got a, a couple minutes here. Do you have a good spring bass fishing tip you might want to share with the guys? We're Absolutely. just losing our ice right now. Water temperatures are, are right in the 40s, so... Uh, anything to help the guys that want to go out and start chasing some bass would be great. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, like this time of year, it it really is um, about a few different things. I mean, you obviously can catch them on a blade bait, um, but one of my favorite ways to catch them is catching them throwing a, throwing an X trap. You know, I think I caught them on a shadow wrap. I catch them on an X trap, a shadow wrap, and an X trap. The shadow wrap deep is probably going to be the clearer the water, the deeper the bass live. I'm going to roll with the shadow wrap deep and then colors selection, keeping it simple. This is how I always, for the most part, colors as far as jerk baits and top waters. I, I normally always go with this, this, this little, this little deal. If the water is super clean and you got wind, I like a little flash to my, to my jerk baits or even my top water. So, you know, I might go with the Halloween. I might go with um, something flashy. And then, you know, if, if the water's clean and it's flat, calm that given day, I'm going to switch to, you know, as far as a, a, a shatter out deep, I'm going to go with more of the translucent colors, the haymakers, even though they're bright, even though some of them bright, there's a true blue. There's a few different those colors that, that, are, that are translucent that the bass might not be able to see what's going on. And then on those days that it's cloudy, I'm going to go with the more solid colors, the more solid whites, um, you know, because those fish will be able to really see what's going on. Obviously, it depends on water clarity. But those are my three go-to colors or three go-to hues when in certain conditions. And it really does make a difference. And the one other thing that I see when you're out there jerk, on a dirt bait, 
I see a lot of people go there, and they'll, you know, it, when the colder the water, most of the time, it, it, it the slower the retrieve. And you know, with that shadow wrap, you you take your time. You know, a lot of times, I I, I remember like actually in Indiana, uh, it was a it, the ice just came out. It was an icebreaker tournament, and like my buddy and I, like they they were eating they were eating the X wrap and a shadow wrap out of the boat that day, but they weren't until we figured out the cadence. And the cadence is actual, you know, that is a huge ordeal with a jerkbait. You know, someone could throw that jerkbait up there and jerk it three times, let it pause for a second and keep going. The cadence that given day, the water was 41 degrees. I remember that. And it was literally you pull it down and you would just, just, you would just pull it just a tad. You just, you would just like, almost like, you wouldn't even jerk it. You would just pull. And then you would pull. And it wasn't even a solid pull; it was just a small little twitch. Yeah, I've you know, I've seen that in the spring for both bass and walleyes. They seem like they like that pull just to where you get it to start to wobble. Exactly, and then stop it again. Yep. And that day we had thirty pound. We had, we ended up you know weighing one of the biggest bags ever weighed in in the state of Indiana that day. And it was all about all it was. It was literally like just that small little pull because it's like that minnow, like that minnow or that bay fish or whatever that shad. He's going and he's just trying. He's struggling so hard to even move because it's so cold. That's when those bass come up there on that slow fall and bite it. So yep. there's a couple different things there. Pay attention to your cadence. Pay attention to your colors. And, you know, you're going to have be a lot more successful this spring on jerkbait. All right, Jacob. Well, I appreciate that. And good luck at your next event. Uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Absolutely, Brad. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks All right. For me on. Thanks. This is Brad Peterson. You're listening to 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented in part by Sun Enterprises, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented in part by Honey Smoked Fish Smoked Salmon. The secret is in the fire. Welcome back. I'm Brad Peterson filling in for Terry this week. And with springtime coming up, we're starting to get open water, and there's a lot of opportunities to get out fishing. And Colorado Parks and Wildlife puts on some many great events to teach people how to fish. And one of those events is going to be taking place on March 17th up at St. Vrain State Park. And we have the park manager, Sean Dunleavy, here to talk about the event. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. How are you doing today? Doing great. Good, good. Yeah, I just wanted to let everybody know about the uh, fishing um, experience that we're going to have up here at St. Vrain on uh, March 17th, uh, four weeks from today. It's going to be our first annual and hopefully not our last annual. <laughs> um, it'll be from 9 in the morning till 1 in the afternoon. So from 9 to 1, we want people to come on up. There uh, will be a fee to get into the park, so you either need to have that $7 day pass or um, an annual pass if you already got one. If you don't have that on this event, we're certainly encouraging people to uh, think about carpooling because we are hoping that parking will be limited with, if we get enough people up here for it. Well, I tell you what, I drove by St. Vrain on the way down, and it looks like uh, some of the ponds are starting to open up, and uh, fishing should start to get to be pretty good. Now, you're going to have people there helping out, uh, teaching new anglers and demonstrating products. And if I got this right, it's not just geared towards kids. This is geared towards everyone who's kind of new to the sport of fishing, or maybe it's been a while since you've been out. 
Yeah, absolutely. We hope that we do have some fun stuff for the kids, too. Um, but it's also just anybody who's new to fishing or anybody who'd like to get a little, a little better at what they're doing. Um, we're going to have some partners up here to help us with that. So it's going to be Parks and Wildlife. But along with that, we're going to have some uh, giveaways and prizes from Shields and Eagle Claw. We're going to have Laughing Grizzly Fly Shop up here helping us out. Uh, St. Vrain Anglers Trout Unlimited, Just One Day, Cerebella Fishing, uh, Jack's Outdoor Gear. And, of course, if you get hungry, we're also going to have Mile High Bass Pioneers selling uh, hot dogs and pop. Well, that sounds great. I know I'm planning to be there to help out as well, and I think some members from the Colorado Walleye Association uh, are going to be there to try to help out uh, teaching any kids that want to come out. Excellent. So, yeah, uh, it sounds like a great event. Give them the, the time and day to get one more time and maybe how they can get more information. Sure, of course. It's uh, Saturday, March 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day, four weeks from today. It's from 9 in the morning till 1 in the afternoon. But the kind of nice thing about this, too, is that it's, um, you know, learning how to fish, learning how to go ahead and cook and clean fish and some other good information. But at the same time, you can put it into practice immediately because you're going to be doing all this right next to our ponds that allow you to fish, um, you know, throughout the day and hopefully have some good fishing opportunities. Well, that sounds great, Sean. Uh, we're going to have to head off to our next guest, but uh, everyone head up there on the 17th for the fishing event. And if you haven't been to St. Vrain State Park, it is a uh, fantastic place to get out and do a little fishing. Thanks again, Sean. Yeah, thank you very much. And now we've got Ray Reeves with Adventure Camper on. And, Ray, you know, we just got done talking to St. Vrain State Park and that is a great place close by to get away and do a little camping. They've got great facilities, the warm weather. It's time to start thinking about, uh, you know, getting out in campers. Yeah, no, uh, you know, as soon as the calendar switches over to January, uh, people start getting out and looking for new campers, and we're ready for them. So we've got lots of great inventory, lots of great styles in stock right now if you're buying a camper. Um We've still got good availability for renting a camper if you're doing that. So, yeah, the camping season is nearly upon us. How about we say that? Well, and the other thing people need to start thinking about, I know that the uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife has started to take reservations. So right. if, if you do, you know, if you've got a camper, you need to start thinking about booking those days, especially on some of the, the real popular weekends or the more popular locations. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a great time to get out there. The weather's going to be nice. I think it'd be a great time for some people to go do a little shopping. You bet. You bet. Um, we're uh, here today from 8 until 4. We're open during the week, Monday through Friday, 8 until 5. So if you're in the market for either a rental or a purchase of a, a new or used camper, uh, we've got a lot of stuff to look at. Uh, inventory is at its peak right now. And uh, lots of choices, lots of good inventory to choose from. Well, that's great. How would someone find you? Uh, on the web, we are at uh, www.adventurecamper.com, and if you want to drop by today, we're near the intersection of uh, Arapahoe and Jordan Roads. All right, Ray, well, we appreciate it. Hopefully some people will stop by today and maybe find that new camper for the summer. Sounds great. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks Brad. And this is Brad Peterson on 104.3 The Fan, filling in for Terry Wickstrom. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoke Fish Company's Honey Smoke Salmon. It is delicious. The secret is in the fire. 
You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented in part by Sun Enterprises, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. I'm Brad Peterson filling in for Terry Wickstrom. And on the line, we have got Larry Rogstad from the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And I have been lucky enough to know Larry and work with him in his capacity as a game warden and an area wildlife manager for over 15 years. And I tell you what, guys, this is one of the truly great people that works for Parks and Wildlife. Uh, Larry, you wanted to talk a little bit about some interaction people may be having with wildlife during the spring, in particular coyotes. Good morning, Brad. How are you doing? Good morning. Uh, coyotes, coyotes are uh, a little familiar this time of year. While uh, our days are getting longer, a little bit warmer, we have more people outside. And then also during this time of year, coyotes are in their courtship and their breeding season are becoming territorial. So they're a little bit more, um, some people say bold and more familiar uh, around people uh, than you might see at other times of the year. They may be more willing to come in close to people that are walking on trails and out in our open space. Spaces, and sometimes that's concerning to, to those people. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's something that's normal, but people need to be aware of and, you know, may need to pay extra attention to because it, when a coyote does get territorial, you know, that's when they may get a little bit more bold or, um, you know, you may also have some of the interactions with your pet, and sometimes those don't turn out the best. Yeah, generally when uh, you're on the trail with your dog, hopefully walking the dog on on leash, um, the coyotes are going to check you out. You're walking through their territory, and uh, they just want to to see what you're up to. to. So you may see escort behavior where the coyote walks parallel uh, to the trail that you're on, or they may come in and actually see you. You might actually see some uh, behaviors that are pretty interesting. Coyotes are really incredible animals in terms of their uh, communication and expressions and body language and vocalizations. And so, uh, but it can be really disconcerting if a coyote comes in very close uh, to you while you're walking your dog or you're, you're with your kids or, or your family. Now, when you're out walking, Larry, is there certain things that you may want to have with you uh, just so that uh, you could, you know, possibly, if something were to happen, you could either protect yourself or maybe spook a coyote away a little bit further? Yeah, you know, first, you know, I, I think I don't want uh, people to be overly concerned um, by it. You know, it's it's part of a natural process, and you generally uh, attacks on coyotes uh, on humans are extremely rare, and uh, um, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. So whenever you're outdoors, whether you're walking a trail in, in Cherry Creek or up in Erie or out in, in the hills someplace, um, being aware of your surroundings is always a really important thing. Um, it's always good. To, to be traveling with someone uh, in a group is better than, than uh, by yourself. Um, carrying a walking stick is really good for a lot of different reasons and, and can be very helpful. And so if uh, coyotes do come in, if a coyote does press you or other critter, um, you know, uh, generally the idea is to make yourself big. Exert your own dominance, uh, wave a coat, swing your arms, shout at the animal, scream, yell, throw rocks, carry the walking stick, and if the coyote approaches, use a walking stick. Try to keep it off. Uh, like I said earlier, keeping a dog on leash is an absolute must if uh, uh, you're outdoors. Um, if the if uh, coyote is coming towards you and you do have a dog, pick your dog up and just be willing to and ready to protect it. 
Well, pick your dog up if you can. I know my lab is uh, <laughs> is a pretty big, big task. If I had to carry that sucker around for too long, uh, the the walk would get pretty short. And I think your lab would probably uh, um, uh, be uh, a pretty intimidating animal for uh, the coyote to be looking at. So right. uh, hopefully they would back off. Yeah, and one other thing I know when we talked earlier in the week you were mentioning is a lot of these trails are in neighborhoods and stuff like that. And these neighborhoods now with social media have a lot of uh, networks and communication resources and with this denning process, you know, usually running into May, when you see some of this activity, oftentimes that activity is going to continue in that area for several weeks or maybe even a month or two. So it might be good to let people know about that. Oh, you bet. First off, if uh, you do see a, a, a coyote, a fox, or another animal that you're worried about, um, call the police uh, department at your local police agency and just let them know what's going on. They can forward the information to us, and uh, if we are getting consistent reports, we can start putting a plan together for addressing that. And then also, um, many neighborhoods have uh, web uh, uh, sites available to communicate back and forth. So uh, put it on, on your local web. Talk to your neighbors about it, because if the uh, the coyote has uh, been coursing through your backyard. It's probably going through the neighbor's backyard, too. So uh, let people know what's going on. That's the, the best defense is a good offense. Yeah, and that is that is great to advice there, Larry. Um, Larry, I know you also work out at Lawn Hagler, and I don't know if you've been out and about by the lake at all here recently. Um, we've got a few more minutes. I was just kind of curious if – the lake has opened up, and if you've heard anything about any of the fishing up in your neck of the woods. The lakes are opening up in the Loveland area. Um, the last few days we've had warm weather. Uh, we've had winds, and that's what pushes the ice off. And so even those lakes that are still frozen up, man, I would not recommend going out on the ice out on a, a prairie lake um, at this late in the year. It's just uh, just not safe. Um, yeah, we're, the ice season's pretty much over. We're now looking for you know, where we have some open water. And if I'm not mistaken, is Lawn Hagler one of the lakes that once it becomes ice-free, you are able to launch a boat? Um, I know some of the state parks, you have to wait until March 1st for inspectors, but is Lawn Hagler one of those you can launch earlier? Our ramps are open at Lone Hagler and still at Lone Tree. Um, a lot of folks know that Lone Tree um, will be shutting it down on June 30th because uh, the lease is uh, going to a, to another group. Um, but our ramps are open at, at uh, Lone Hagler and Lone Tree, and as soon as the ice is off, um, we welcome the people to come out and, and uh, do some spring boating. Also, when the ice comes out, uh, most of the Lone Hagler is a reservoir that we do a significant fall stocking of, of catchable rainbow trout. They've been under the ice all winter uh they've been eating they've been growing and when they come out in the springtime they are nice and pink and and uh really firm flesh so uh it's that time to get out there and start that spring fishing yeah it is uh the one thing to think about uh lone tree doesn't officially open until monday because there is still waterfowl season going on correct uh, with goose season so you can't launch there today or tomorrow but on monday that is open for an opportunity well larry i want to thank you for coming on and giving some great information i appreciate it brad it's always good talking to you good talking to you larry that was larry rogstad with colorado parks and wildlife i'm brad peterson filling in for terry wickstrom and we will be back in just a moment you're listening to terry wickstrom outdoors presented in part by sun enterprises colorado's largest atv and motorcycle dealer 
You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented in part by Honey Smoked Fish Smoked Salmon. The secret is in the fire. Welcome back. I'm Brad Peterson filling in for Terry this weekend. He is out on assignment on the West Coast. We have got a longtime friend on here that we I was lucky enough to uh, to get to come on and talk about some really exciting stuff. This this friend I've known for John, I, I was thinking almost 20 years now. John Vaca, who is the national pro staff manager for Primos Federal Final Approach in Bushnell. Welcome, John. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be here. And yeah, it's been closer to 25 years. Oh, it's it's been quite a long time, and to think after that uh, that first waterfowl hunt, we still would be uh, talking. We just need to get out and do a little bit more hunting. Yeah, I'm telling you, you know, back when we first started, we were both a lot younger. Uh, that's true, and, and a, a lot fewer obligations. This is true. This is true, man. Well, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. John, I was out at the uh, Western Hunting Expo last weekend in Utah, and got a chance to actually see a new blind that Primos has put out. They call it their surround view blind. I tell you what, this thing is amazing. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about this? Well, I, I can tell you right now that uh, we, we debuted that at the ATA show this year. Uh, and it was actually a show stopper. Um, I think it was dubbed the best of show. It was it was absolutely incredible. And it's a definite game changer for blind hunters. Um, it, it is... Uh, we have three different models of it. We have a 180-degree view, a 270-degree view, and uh, the 360-degree view, which has four uh, one-way see-through panels um, in the blind. And you can literally see out of the blind 360 degrees around you while nothing can see in. I know. Um, it is it is absolutely fantastic. And this is a, a portable pop-up blind that would work great for anyone looking, you know, for big game hunting, uh, turkey hunting. And I can tell you where I think it's going to have a really big impact is out in the youth hunting area. Well, that's true. That is absolutely true. You know, we'll step back just real quick. It weighs uh, 22 pounds folded up, goes in a case, goes over your shoulder. You can take it about anywhere with you. Sets up in about 30 seconds after you've tried uh, practice a time or two. But, uh, uh, I can tell you that in in hunting deer season with the last fall, it took some getting used to because it plays mind games with you. You can see so well through it that you feel exposed, even though you're not. You have to constantly tell yourself that you're still hid. And I actually had uh, a doe walk up and start pulling willow leaves off of some saplings that I had used to camouflage the blind in with. I couldn't have been more than 12 inches from her face, and I was waving my hand in front of her face inside the blind. She had absolutely no clue that I was there. So that told me right there, this is a, a total and complete game changer. When you can fool the eyes of a KGO white-tailed doe, you've got something good. Well, and that was it. You know, I hopped in there and had people look through, you know, people that were walking by, never even knew I was in there. The other neat thing is, with the way these panels are, you can use your optics through there, whether it's, you know, a Bushnell binoculars. You can see right through. It's a little bit darker than if you're looking through the, the shooting windows, but you can use your optics right through this material. It is, it's absolutely fantastic. It's like it's not there. Yeah, it is. Um, the best way I could possibly describe it is uh, 
you know, some of those logos that people put on their back or side window of vehicles or something like that, where you can look right through it, but someone from the outside, you know, just sees the logo and isn't able to look in. It's, it is something that if you are a blind hunter or thinking about purchasing a blind, you need to go and really take a look at this new Primo surround view blind. Well, you need to, you need to take a look at it. Um, you also can download an app from the App Store, uh, the Double Bull app, which will actually let you, uh, with your phone or your, your iPad, place the blind in a hunting situation, in a virtual reality situation, and you can actually step into the blind while looking at your phone or your, uh, your iPad, and it will kind of give you an idea on what, what you're going to be seeing if you were to place the blind right there. So it's a uh, you know it, it it's a cool app. It's going to give you an idea on what you're actually seeing through. So somebody can actually virtually shop, I guess, and and take a look at that blind before they buy it. But once you actually get a hold of the blind and get in it, it's going to change the way you hunt. Well, and where I also see that app really coming in handy is for all of our big game hunters that are going up into the hills in the mountains and doing hiking trips and a little bit of scouting. You're able to put the blind out there with that app and look around and see where the good locations are going to be and maybe eliminate a few that just don't sit right and so maybe select others that you wouldn't have thought about. Right, right. And, you know, the, the blinds the blinds have, have specific features just like all double bull blinds do. I mean, they, they've got the new and approved hubs. They've got the, the extremely durable uh, cover, covering um, that, that's made to last forever. They have a lifetime warranty on them. Um, the 360-degree blind, though, one of the first things that people asked about was, what about silhouetting? If you can kind of, if it's one way, you know, when the light's just right, you, you can even see through one-way mirror if the light's right. Right. Well, we have a movable panel in the 360 that you can adjust that will kill the blind spot uh, so there's no silhouetting. Oh, that's that's fantastic. The one I looked at was the 270, and, and that was a great one. Right, um, and they have one solid panel in the back. Yep. The one has two solid panels in the back, but the, uh, the 360 actually has one that you can tuck out of the way, and in the event that you want to you uh, kill some silhouetting, you can pull that panel down, and it just clips in, and you're blocked. Oh, that's great. Well, I tell you what, John, we still have some time, and I know you are a diehard turkey hunter. We are kind of getting into that time frame that people here are starting to think about turkey season. Oh, yeah. um, do you have a few tips for maybe a new hunter, uh, uh, a type of call that you'd recommend using or, or something that you think people overlook when it comes to being a successful turkey hunter? Well, one, one thing that I learned, and I kind of learned it the hard way, I think I turkey hunted for three or four years before I actually was – successful in killing my first gobbler. Um, and, and one thing I did is, is I watched videos and I went to seminars and I watched videos and watched TV shows and I saw the guys using calls and, and, and all different kinds of calls and using them a lot. And one thing I found out over the years is that woodsmanship plays a huge role in turkey hunting. Use your eyes and your ears, have patience, and remember, just as important on knowing when to call as when not to call. Yeah, that that is true. And also, if I remember right, I, I think I remember watching you belly crawl about 400 yards to get to you know shoot what? a turkey. 
you, you have to be adaptable, and there's, there's lots of different situations. There's some days when the turkeys want to come to you, and they're vocal. There's other days when the turkeys won't say a word, and you have to go to them. You know, there's, there, you just have to be, it's like waterfowl hunting or deer hunting. You just need to be open-minded and think outside the box. But just remember, um, a turkey, his, his curiosity, um, nine times out of ten gets him killed. So if you hear a bird gobbling and he shuts off, one of two things is happening. Either he's with hens or he's coming to you. But either way, you're going to want to have patience. And uh, the best tip I could probably give right now is I see more and more of my hunting buddies stop hunting about an hour or two after fly down, after, after daylight, and they go in and have breakfast and they call it a day. I can honestly tell you that most of my birds have been killed between the 10 and 1 o'clock time frame. And the reason that is is the birds will gobble like crazy off the limb, but they'll tend to fly down and be with hens right off the bat. Sometimes that makes it difficult for them to come to your calls because they're with hens. But once those hens get bred and they go off to nest, then those toms are really susceptible. And once if you call, you get one gobbling in mid-afternoon, mid-morning, chances are you're going to kill him. Yeah, I know uh, we went out hunting to Great Bend, Kansas a few, well, more than just a few years ago, but uh, we had – two or three turkeys that we killed and every one of them was in that time frame. Um, we might've, we might've located what area had birds first thing in the morning, but it was that middle of the daytime when we were right. able to, to actually call the birds in and get them to come to our location. Absolutely. I mean, and it's always fun to shoot a bird off the roost, you know, when they're, when they fly down and come to you strutting and gobbling, you've, you've been able to sneak into their bedroom and, and make everything work. But, you know, not all hunts wind up like that, and and I can I can physically tell you that that over three quarters of the birds that I've killed have been in you know that that post roost time frame. You know that 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 mid to late morning, early afternoon time frame. Yeah. Now, if someone wanted to pick up a turkey call and they're new to it, I know for myself the call that I recommend people looking at is some sort of a slate call. Um, it seems to be real easy for people to pick up, but but what call would you recommend? You know, um, we make a call uh, called the Freak at Primos, um, and 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 that's that's just kind of a uh, one example of the models that we that, that we make. But a friction call uh, in itself, a pot call, a slate call, a glass call, uh, a carbonite call. Um, one of those friction calls is something that's easy to pick up. Um, they're really, really versatile. Most of them will work in a lot of different weather conditions, and you can get loud and soft and do a lot of different things with them. So I would highly recommend that. You know, I've, I've been turkey hunting for, for 30, 35 years, and I still revert back to a slate call or sometimes a box call, but a slate call more often than not. And I, and I call a slate call a slate call kind of like you'd call it Kleenex or Coke. I just mean a potted call of some sort. It could be a glass call. Um, but I, I use those more than anything because the realism's there, they're easy to work, and they're so um, they're so adaptable. Right, and, and one of the tricks you taught me with the slate call is you are able on certain ones to have a variety of strikers that will actually give you different sounds on a slate call. So just by changing the 
the striker material that you're using to create the friction can change the volume or the the tone of the call as well. It can, and and something else. You, if you don't have a, a variety of strikers, the way you hold the pot call, how much of it is in contact with the palm of your hand, or how far out in the fingers it is, how far up or down you're holding the striker, like a pencil, can change the tone. You can get your pitches high, you can get them low, you can get them clean, you can get them muddy. Um, there's there's just so many variables that you can that you can make happen with that friction call by just changing things up. And that just comes from practice. And every new hunter out there can buy one of these and just start messing with it and, and, and learn what different things do and how it changes sounds up. And you'll find that the longer you're in the woods, you'll hear the different turkey sounds and you'll be able to emulate those on uh, your friction call. And you'll also start to notice when to make those calls and what the birds do when you make them. Yeah, and that that is very true, and and that's one a discussion for another time. But being able to read birds, it's just like waterfowl hunting. Um, have, it, yep, having the vocabulary is key, but being able to read them is very important. Yep. All right, John. Well, I want to thank you for uh, calling in, and that's some great information. And let's let's not let another fall pass by that we get uh, don't get out and chase some sort of critter. No, let's let's make it happen, Brad. Life's too short, brother. Yep, I agree. Thanks a lot, John. We'll see you. All right, this is Brad Peterson on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoke Fish Company's Honey Smoke Salmon. It is delicious. The secret is in the fire. 